Welcome to Point Two Law Review. My name is John Brandt. And I am Carson Messersmith. And we are here the week of, oh my goodness, I'm going to mess up the weeks. Is it April something? It is April something. So let's see. It's Last digit. week was April 7th, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12th. 11th and 14th. 11th through the 14th. 11th through the 14th. Well, good. That's us this week. 11th through the 14th. Ooh, Easter was last week. Did you have a good Easter? I did have a good Easter. See the fam? Yep. Ate some ham. Did you die any eggs? No, I did not die any eggs. So when you're older and your kids die eggs, and uh, in my house they die, die real eggs, and then the Easter bunny comes, as one does, and then he, uh, the Easter bunny, they, uh, Hide the real eggs. Oh. So around after they get done trying to find all the eggs, <laughs> then it becomes the parents' Easter egg hunt where it's like, uh, where did we put those real eggs? Yeah, let's not lose the uh, soon-to-be rotting real eggs. Told that story to somebody this week. They said that their grandparents hid one outside by the air conditioner and didn't notice it Ooh. until summer when they turned it on. Ooh. It was bad, and they had to get rid of the uh, egg smell. Speaking of egg smells, we got some stuff from the Nebraska Supreme Court and Nebraska Court of Appeals this week. Uh, not not anything dramatic, right? No, and uh, you know, I think this is probably the the smallest number of opinions they've dropped in quite a while. All right, well, let's start with our ex parte summary. Uh, what do you got? Uh, first case we have is Angel versus Nebraska Department of Natural Resources, and this uh, the ex parte would be dam failure. Damn failure. Damn failure. You damn failure. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think you can get away with that. Yeah. I don't, I have, to, I don't have to click the uh, explicit it's funny. button. Yeah, no, leave it, leave it alone. <laughs> State v. Lindsey Johnson, uh, assault, second degree, child abuse, affirmed, uh, long. That was a good, it was a long one. 29 there, pages? It, yeah, yeah, it was. That's why you listen, folks. <laughs> All right. Go right ahead, Carson. Let's start with the uh, damn failure. So Angel versus Nebraska Department of Resources. This, um, as I prefaced, is a case about the Spencer Dam failure um, in 2019, which I would just like to say and start this by saying that what a terrible tragedy. Absolutely. Um, you know, maybe the worst natural disaster event I've seen um, in my lifetime in the state of Nebraska. Um, and kudos to our entire state and the way that people rallied around that i know this podcast isn't about digressing but sure. i just i i remember what a what a time that was and, and being in law school at that time being in eastern nebraska and the way that it affected people and communities and all those kind of things and anytime we have an opinion or something that is about that it just reminds me of no. you know what a terrible event yeah, that and, was. And, and, and after that in the aftermath whenever there's a tragedy like that you really get to see the best of nebraskans Absolutely. Uh, and it is, we truly are blessed to live in a great state where people take care of their neighbors and help others. And man, did we see that during that. So 100%. Uh, yeah, take that 10 seconds to say that piece. Um, sure. But this uh, suit originated out of that failure um, of Spencer Dam, um, and it came under the Safety of Dam and Reservoirs Act. And so again, here we're uh, kind of talking about whether or not um, the Nebraska Department of Natural Resources, who um, inspects and then qualifies these dams, are responsible were responsible uh, for this failure and should have uh, liability. And so the act is uh, pro provides pretty broad immunity, and that becomes kind of the, the large piece at issue um, here. Uh, 
little bit of brief history on on the failure. Um, the inspection here um, identified two human factors contributing to the dam's failure and consequences, and one was a lack of knowledge about the ice run-related potential failure modes generally in the dam safety industry, and the other was um, that the Nebraska Dam Safety Program and MPPD underestimated the potential of, dam of the dam to cause life-threatening flooding at the downstream house and property in the event of the dam failure. And so here, um, the district court had granted summary judgment on behalf of the Nebraska Department of Natural Resource, saying that the act does not relieve an owner or operator of um, legal duties, obligations, or liabilities under um, this act. But because um, the Nebraska Department of Natural Resources was not a operator, um, they therefore had no um, liability. And so um, the immunity here uh, doesn't extend to the owner operator, but it's not... Um, it, it is not encompassing of um, someone who is just doing inspections here. And so, um, again, just a little bit of the background here. The department had classified this as a significant hazard dam, um, and um, it hadn't required MPPD to develop an emergency action plan for the dam, um, and there was no plan um, that existed for the dam. And so the, the angels um, here were arguing that uh, MPPD um, – and um, the department were both responsible because uh, the department should have, you know, classified this dam differently and had different things in place. And, you know, there was a lot of prior negligence. And I, I will note here that MPPD um, had settled with these parties prior to, and so there was a stipulation to dismiss MPPD from the action uh, because of that settlement. And so it's pretty clear here that there's obvious liability um, for dam operators in these kind of circumstances. But the Supreme Court goes through and, and goes in detail through the act and essentially finds that because the department didn't assume control of the dam during the emergency and because they didn't have control of the dam during the time and because this act was so recent, um, it didn't cover some of the prior actions um, of the department in regards to classification of the dam and, and preparations of the dam. Um, there was no exception to the immunity um, in 46-1639, um, and so they, they affirmed the granting of summary judgment. Again, one of these cases where it's super narrow as far as what it applies to probably in practice because it, it pretty much does focus on the Safety of Dam and Reservoirs Act, which I can't imagine too many practitioners run into in their daily lives. Lives. But when it comes to uh, that piece of legislation, I think it's probably one of the few, and I haven't looked into this, but probably one of the few pieces of, of good um, and recent law out there in regards to that. So if you're anyone who operates, which right now waters in, in focus in the state of Nebraska, as we talk about, you know, the, the Perkins County Canal or the uh, the the new uh, projects that are potentially happening in Nebraska in relation to water, and so if you have one of those things, you know it's it, it's always helpful to have discussion of that and and look at the act. But again, um, another case that offers a, a little bit of insight into a kind of niche area of the law. All right, uh, we had got uh, State v. Lindsey Johnson. It's a criminal appeal. Uh, she was convicted of assault in the second degree and child abuse after a jury trial. Um, we've got four main areas and then or four main areas for the appeal. There was uh, some amendments to the information, so there was no preliminary hearing on uh, a certain count. I believe it was a child abuse count. Uh, so there wasn't a preliminary hearing on that, and that was alleged to be error. They, I should note that they had different appellate counsel than trial counsel. So a lot of these were raised as ineffective assistance of counsel claims. Uh, couched in other ways as, as, as plain error is probably an ar another argument that they were trying to make. Second here, so no prelim on a certain count. 
uh, fail to sequester a uh, state's designated witness, the de- state designated a victim as a witness, and there was a failure to object, and, and then the victim um, was the state's designee and was not sequestered during the course of uh, the trial. A failure to provide a self-defense jury instruction uh, regarding the matter, and then an excessive sentence issue. The only real meat here, from my perspective, would be uh, whether you have the prelim or not. I think that's some there's some new findings here. Um, you have a really old case, I think it was from 1899 or something like that, that the defense on appeal was, was arguing here, saying, hey, if you don't have a prelim, you can't convict somebody of that. What we're, what the Nebraska Supreme Court here says is that the proper way to challenge no preliminary hearing is either through a motion to quash or a plea in abatement. And further, if you go through a jury trial and uh, you have a fact finder uh, say that these matters were proved beyond a reasonable doubt, that cures the lack of a preliminary hearing. So there would be no need uh, for a preliminary hearing and you can't go back and challenge uh, through a plea in bar or plea in abatement or, or motion to quash if the matter was submitted to a jury without raising that issue. So that is, uh, I think, some nugget uh, that can be uh, gleaned from th- this opinion. The sequestration issue is interesting, but it doesn't get into the facts here because there's a procedural issue. It was raised for the first time at the appellate level, um, but I, I, I think it's probably you know, interesting to discuss whether the state could designate a potential witness, a potential victim witness as the designee in order to go through the jury trial and then have that person testify consistent with some of the other uh, witnesses that were uh, not sequestered or that were sequestered, but the, because they were the designee, they, they heard that information. I think that's probably an interesting issue, but it wasn't raised here because of some procedural bars. The district court also uh, declined to give a jury instruction on self-defense. The self-defense jury instruction was uh, contrary to the facts as as the court viewed them. They got into the facts a little bit here and said uh, that it was... uh, there was no evidence to support a conclusion that uh, somebody was acting in self-defense here, so it was proper to not provide that jury instruction. And this is something, if, if the defendant is unjustifiably placed himself or herself in harm's way, a court may properly find that such facts do not support a lawful claim of self-defense. So you can't go looking for a fight is the way I interpret that. And then the excessive sentence, it was within the statutory uh, range, so it was uh, affirmed. There is some discussion about, you know, what can a judge consider? The The district court here was uh, very vocal about, you know, you didn't take responsibility for these circumstances and, and made some other findings, uh, you know, that were maybe outside the scope of the pre-sentence re- re- investigation report, but the court uh, did not find that the, any of those uh, determinations or fact findings that were uh, by the court following a jury trial were an abuse of discretion, and it was affirmed. That is the Nebraska Supreme Court opinions this week. Jet on to the Court of Appeals. Let's do it. First case we come to is State v. Betts. Uh, this is an AP, This is an appeal from a plea-based um, conviction uh, arising out of the District Court of Nemaha County. And here there was a ton of counts originally and end up being uh, fairly substantial um, sentences and and uh felonies that were uh, a result of this um 
plea bargain and the main issue on appeal uh, was ineffective assistance of counsel and there's not too much um, original here uh, other than you know the issues that were being raised were um, you know failure to depose witnesses failure to um, file pretrial motions um, and some kind of general things and here there was just uh, generally an issue um, about you know making these ineffective assistance of counsel claims and making the specific allegations why um, it was deficient and why it would have um, impacted uh, the trial here and uh, the court of appeals found that there was not an effective assistance of counsel and affirmed evan s v laura h this is a uh, paternity action started that way um and it was filed. So Evan S., let me get into the facts a little bit. Evan S. and Laura H. have a child. Uh, they're not married. And Evan uh, gets a DNA test shortly after the birth of the child. That confirms, you know, within the those nine numbers, however long the 99.99 forever ago, um, that he is the father of this child. Then um, he, they have a sporadic relationship. Uh, it indicates that depending on which affidavit is, is more credible uh, to ever any fact finder, but there's some disagreements there. Anyway, she claims that he moved to Colorado, came back a few times to see the child, went camping with uh, the child in Colorado at one point, had some overnight visitation, and then came back at a certain point and was going to provide childcare during the day while she worked, and they were going to continue that relationship. And then that relationship uh, went away. There was uh, some allegations of maybe some uh, negative behavior on the part of Evan, and then he files for paternity. The thing is, he files for paternity in the complaint for paternity in district court five months after the four-year statute of limitations, and the, uh, the four-year statute of limitations would be under 43-1411. So he filed outside of time for that uh, hearing. They had a hearing where the uh, mother, through a special appearance, filed a motion to dismiss and said, hey, the court lacks subject matter jurisdiction, provides an affidavit at that hearing, and they said that the uh, child support enforcement was never able to establish paternity because he always moved, and the uh, Evan relied upon the DNA test, and he said, hey, I have this DNA test, I'm dad, um, give me rights that dad would have, and therefore this court has jurisdiction. The district court says we don't have subject matter jurisdiction because the statute of limitations had run. Now, um, the Nebraska Court of Appeals cleans this up a little bit. <clears throat> they say it wasn't a lack of subject matter jurisdiction <clears throat> because of the statute of limitations, but a failure to state a claim upon which relief can be granted. So it's not a jurisdictional issue. It's a if you're outside of the statute of limitations, you can't uh, you know, have a valid claim for relief. And they also said, and this is this has been the standard for a while, but a DNA not supported by a notarized acknowledgement of paternity or any other matter is not a legal finding. Uh, so DNA alone is not enough. <clears throat> and then similarly, the uh, acknowledgement of paternity is superior to a DNA. So if somebody has a notarized acknowledgement of paternity, that would be superior to a DNA test. And the notarized acknowledgement of paternity is, <clears throat> why are we... Is it allergies? I think it's allergy season. I, mean, I think it's got you too, John. We, we got two frogs talking, but we'll get through it. Um, the notarized acknowledgement of paternity is superior to the DMA, DNA testing. And so that is uh, what was discussed here. They also, Evan here, challenged the 
um, constitutionality of the statute of limitations on that statute because, you know, if there was a juvenile action, the child could be 14 and <clears throat> they could still get through <clears throat> it. Um, so the, the fact that there wasn't a juvenile action l- limited him to four years. Now, the Court of Appeals here says that's enough. You, you, four years is enough to go and, and uh, state your valid claim and get that DNA test to establish that paternity uh, exists at the time uh, in order to establish those rights, and he failed to do so. So the dismissal, although on a different ground because of failure to state a claim and not subject matter jurisdiction, was dismissed. Now, I think the undertone here, and there's some discussion about the, the, the logic because Evan's claim makes logical sense, right? You have a DNA test that should establish something that should be more than a simple piece of paper that says, you know, uh, this person, I'm dad to this person. So there's a certain logic to it that it should be more enforceable. But I think the undertone here is that the statutes don't necessarily have to be logical uh, to be enforceable. And that's, that's where they're at here. In this case, the constitutionality was previously found. It wasn't raised at the trial level, but the, the court went into it a little bit. Says uh, 43-1411 is constitutional because it provides that four years, which is sufficient time to establish paternity. And uh, the uh, court, or excuse me, the trial court, the district court was affirmed, even though on dis- different grounds. So that's uh, Evan S. V. Laura H. And Chatterjee just keeps echoing back in my head as you're talking about that case because I feel. <laughs> feel like it's kind of confluence with one of the bigger opinions that the Supreme Court's dropped recently. Yeah, and if we go back to to review where things are at afterwards, if we have a little bonus section, that's one I'd like to see what's going on with that one because mm-hmm. uh, there could be some either higher appeals or some other uh, issues at the trial court level. Okay, next opinion we come to is State v. Chris. And if we have any judges who listen to this, which I think, by the way, would be very cool, and we appreciate you all. Um, If we have any judges who listen, I think this is a case that's super important for judges um, and is kind of a hidden opinion. So um, this is an appeal from a... um, plea-based conviction in Douglas County, and the issue on appeal is excessive sentence. And so you think, okay, this is just another excessive sentence appeal, uh, nothing nothing to see here, um, except for there kind of is. And the issue here is that the district court um, sentenced this individual who um, the, the plea was from one count of an attempted possession of a firearm by a prohibited person, which is a class two felony, and one count of carrying a concealed weapon, which is a class one misdemeanor. And here the uh, sentencing judge had given 365 days in prison on the carrying of a concealed weapon. And on appeal, the state says that this shouldn't be a determinate sentence. It should be an indeterminate sentence for the Class 1 misdemeanor. And they say that it should be so um, because um, Nebraska Revised Statute 2922.04.025 requires the st- the court to impose an indeterminate sentence for the offense. That's what the the state is arguing. And so they are arguing that for any sentence of imprisonment for a misdemeanor imposed consecutively or concurrently with a sentence of imprisonment for a class three, three a or four felony for an offense committed um, after August 30th. So in this uh, statute, um, the court set shall impose a determinate sentence um, within the applicable range in um, 28106 unless the person is also committed to the Department of Corrections in accordance um, with uh, another statute um, and then um, sentenced to prison on a 3A or 3-4 felony and then um, 
also a sentence of imprisonment on a class 1, 1A, 1B, 1C, 1D, 2, or 2A felony. And so essentially what they reconcile or the Court of Appeals is dealing with and, and results in a dissenting opinion, which you don't often see and don't often see from our Court of Appeals, is that uh, the majority here says that you have to, as a prerequisite, have either a 3, a 3A, or a class 4 felony in order to uh, be required to have the um, indeterminate sentence. So they're saying that you it's not enough that you just have a 1, 1A, 1B, 1C, 1D, 2, or 2A felony. You have to have that in uh, cooperation with a 3, 3A, or uh, class 4 felony in order to have an indeterminate sentence. And so they struggle with that and say that the plain uh, reading of the statute requires you to have both the felonies. And the um, dissent here is saying that no that doesn't make any sense why would we require that you have to have both those felonies it would make more sense that if you have a high level felony that's requiring this long sentence that you would have indeterminate sentencing in order for it to make sense with our um, our release date and then um, supervised release and parole system which is is why we have these aren't indeterminate sentences and so that's what this opinion wrestles with and so that's one of those cases where if you have someone who's uh, being sentenced on one of these things it's it's something to keep in the back of your mind for uh, criminal law practitioners but then also I think this is a huge opinion for judges because now you have to pay attention to when uh, you are required or not required to uh, give that indeterminate sentence or determinate sentence and here it looks like as long as you don't have a um, three, uh, 3A or a class 4 felony when you're sentencing someone on a higher level felony, then you are allowed to give a determinate sentence under this Court of Appeals opinion. But if, you know, at some point if that changes and the, um, and the uh, dissent is adopted and that becomes the controlling law in Nebraska, then, you know, it may be a situation where you're required to give indeterminate sentences uh, for individuals who are being sentenced on just high-level felonies. So I think this is kind of an interesting area of the law. Maybe we'll see it resolved soon, but I think there is um, a few things at play. And again, maybe it's enough of a uh, niche area that, you know, the legislature won't ever address it or the Supreme Court won't take it up. Um, but it is something where I think it has a lot of practical um, constraints. So you know, any criminal law practitioners, I think it's worth to worth it to take a look at this state v. Chris. All right. Uh, Knight v. Dame. This is an inmate pro se appeal. Um, Mr. Knight was uh, allegedly assaulted by other inmates on four separate occasions in 2016, and he brought action against the state penitentiary and some other uh, care providers. Uh, for the Tecumseh State Correctional Institution and the um, alleging, uh, you know, as you can imagine, numerous um, grievances and filing complaints prior to that. And um, the issue here, there's really only one. He, he didn't file a bill of exceptions or a request for a bill of exceptions. So the interesting takeaway from this case, from a practitioner's point of view, is, well, what happens and, and what can a court of appeals discuss when there isn't a, a review of a bill of exceptions? When the facts aren't in the record, what can the court do? And there is a, a, a very good discussion about how the level of analysis that can be performed on a case just by the pleadings without reviewing the bill of exceptions. So that's the takeaway here. Um, the um, care solutions uh, providers and then the... Um, 
Nebraska Department of Corrections, they moved to for summary judgment against Mr. Knight, and that was granted at the trial court level, and it was a, affirmed on the Court of Appeals. Next case we come to is Carter versus Civil Service Commission of Douglas County, and here the issue is that the uh, Douglas County Treasurer had suspended um, Patricia Carter, the individual appealing here, from her employment within the Treasurer's Office for two days without pay. Uh, she appealed that to the Douglas County Civil Service Commission. They upheld the suspension, and then she uh, sought review from the district court um, and basically had a pleading error where she named only the commission as the opposing party and didn't have Douglas County. And so the district court said um, that dismissed because they said that Douglas County was an indispensable party. She sought leave to amend, but it was too late. Um, and so because the, the um, district court didn't have jurisdiction, uh, the Court of Appeals said that they also did not have jurisdiction, and there for um, affirmed state v dismissed i should say not affirmed dismissed oh that's good uh, state v sabota uh mr sabota was uh convicted of possession of methamphetamine on a plea-based conviction and was sentenced to six to 18 months um i believe it was concurrent with some other um charges that he had from other counties there was a global agreement um whereby there's there was the state was going to make a recommendation of a concurrent uh, sentence with other matters and then on appeal here mr sabota alleges that it was ineffective assistance of counsel for him to both withdraw a motion to suppress without uh, speaking with him first and then not uh, making the proper uh you know uh, alloc- uh, well, statement at sentencing regarding what the universal plea uh, said regarding sentencing. I don't know whether that was actually the universal plea or not. That's, we're not really sure about that. But what we do know through this opinion, which I think is a little hidden gem, uh, it has a really good colloquy between the court and the, the defendant prior to taking his plea. And what that colloquy does is it removes all of these other claims that um, Mr. Sabota is raising as ineffective assistance of counsel. It's creating such a record by this colloquy between the court and the defendant that th- he cannot establish those ineffective assistance of counsel claims and that the Court of Appeals can review them, has enough to review them, and find that they have no merit. So it, it goes through in detail. It has a page and a half here of you know what was your understanding of the agreement, all these other matters prior to finding the conviction and sentencing him uh, as the lower court did. So I think that is a, a good takeaway, uh, as you said earlier, for judges, uh, if they want to take a look at that and maybe add that to your uh, statements uh, prior to taking a plea or at least consider it, that might be appropriate here. Uh, but in this instance, Mr. Sabota's uh, you know, appeal based on ineffective assistance of counsel and excessive sentence uh, were affirmed. Then we come to Parrish versus Parrish, a divorce case coming out of the District Court for Lancaster County. You know, again, I say this every week, but incredibly fact-intensive, um, you know, about 10 pages of facts here. Uh, the one piece that I will note that I think is um, always kind of interesting is the uh, final section on uh, child support. And here, um, one party is arguing that, you know, even though there's joint uh, legal custody, um, you know, essentially he, and joint physical custody, essentially the father's arguing that the children are with me a lot more. And so uh, this child support award doesn't make any sense. Um, and here, you know, the court again says there is a rebuttable presumption uh, that if you have joint physical and legal custody, that it is 50-50. And therefore, um, you know, we don't have any issues with awarding this, but it is uh, kind of one of those cases where it seems like, you know, practical constraints 
constraints of, uh, you know, one party taking care of certain things with medical issues and actually having the children more uh, butts up to uh, where our law intervenes and maybe results in some unfair uh, endings. But either way, uh, just kind of an interesting uh, note buried there at the very end. I think that's all we got. Unfair is pretty subjective. That's true. I have another case. Oh. <laughs> That's okay. Go ahead. Uh, State v. Armaro Sanchez. Uh, this is a plea-based conviction. Uh, he was convicted of sexual assault and incest. He was sentenced to 10 to 20 years on both convictions to be served consecutive to one another. He alleged on appeal that uh, he was... Uh, obviously he had an excessive sentence and then he received ineffective assistance of counsel because they failed to uh, provide him with a the discovery or failed to file a motion for discovery I think was what he was al- uh, alleging here on appeal uh, further he as he complained on appeal that uh, his trial counsel did not adequately address his, or discuss with him the immigration consequences of his conviction. Now, the uh, excessive sentence was within statutory range, so that was affirmed uh, without uh, much discussion. The discovery issue was uh, dismissed and, and found without merit because it lacked specificity to show well, what would have changed uh, if you were given the discovery or if that discovery motion was filed further. There was a pretrial order that said that the party should exchange exculpatory evidence and, and, and uh, you know, basically discovery. There was a pretrial discovery order in the record. So how does not filing for a discovery motion, how does that change things? And then finally, the immigration consequences. The trial court uh, properly uh, advised the defendant uh, of the that there may be immigration consequences to his um, uh, plea, and therefore he was properly advised by the court. So it doesn't uh, demonstrate how any further discussion with trial counsel would have changed anything or prejudiced him. So everything there was affirmed for State v. Amaro Sanchez. Now we're done. I'm sorry, Mr. Sanchez. Because you missed it? No, because, I yeah, I tried to skip him. Well, oh, this is a depressing. Why did I do this? <laughs> wow. You know this song? Yeah. 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 Oh, is it? Should I not talk No, no, about no, it? it was good. Oh, okay. Anyway, um, so that's uh, point two law review for this week. We did it. I we think, did it. I think that's a point two. That was a good one. That was a good one. All right. Well, uh, this is Point Two Law Review brought to you by Anderson, Klein, Brewster, and Brandt. We got offices in Kearney, Holdridge, and Minden. And uh, go back to episode one for the disclaimer. What else should we talk Continue about? Continue to check us out on the socials. Uh, send in your questions, thoughts, uh, tips, pointers, things you'd like to see. We need to get a sponsorship. I appreciate that. Apparently, uh, Claritin, Allegra, Zyrtec, if you're yeah. listening. Yeah, we apologize. We're finally froggy. <laughs> John jinxed us. I he know. said, you know, every episode for the first 10 episodes that, you know, it was coming. Well, this, here it is. This is 20, by the way. Wow. Well, if you stuck with us for 20, thank you. And if you're just here for the first one, thanks for coming. Well, cheers to 20 more, okay? Absolutely. And then we'll we'll think it over. <laughs> thanks, everybody. Yep. Have a good week. But sometimes at night when the cold wind moans in a long black veil, she cries all my bones.